Hey, Cole, are you ready to truly push the limits on what's acceptable to talk about this week on Second to Die? What scares me is I feel like we already have, but you clearly don't. Well, get ready, because this week, like a newly minted twink in a leather bar, they are getting stretched, honey. did you like that yes (laughs) to be a newly minted twink in a leather bar welcome to second to die a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things and sometimes horror sometimes horror i'm max and i'm cole and sadly i didn't go to my first leather bar until i was after 25 which is too old to be a twink anymore oh yeah 25 is gay 40 pretty much 30 is gay dad i have died I'm like the ghost of Christmas past at this point. But you are post-gasis, which is gay stasis, which is the years between 30 and 35 when you are no longer young. So you retreat into your chrysalis and then you metamorphose and you emerge at 35 as a daddy. (laughs) Is that how that works? Yes, it is. I am currently in gasis. Please stand by for the next four years. Yeah, I mean... I've been called daddy more than once, so I'm accept I'm accepting of that. I will never call you daddy because I call my own father daddy <laughs> with absolutely no irony, something that my therapist finds deeply hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I don't have kids or anything. I've, I've swallowed a few kids. But <laughs> nope. You're cutting that. You are cutting that, Maximilian. Absolutely not. Too much. Too far. Anyway, welcome back, everybody. <laughs> If this is your first time tuning in, I hope you're ready for a very um, interesting experience. We review and discuss a horror movie and a horror book every episode and generally make really inappropriate, usually sexually charged commentary the whole time. Okay. Are we ready? I'm ready. So what am I doing this week? I'm actually quite excited because this week's movie is outrageous. It's a trauma entertainment film, which is the same studio that produced Mother's Day. Okay. I thought trauma entertainment was a category for a minute, and I was like, that's problematic. No. Trauma is not entertaining. Otherwise, my life would be hilarious. So, <laughs> it's a film studio. I'll talk a little bit about it, but I'll just start off because I don't want to bury the lead too much. I'm talking about a film made in 1990, produced by Trauma Studios. Called Frankenhooker. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Quick disclaimer. Sex work is real work and should be respected. Anyway. We'll be talking a lot about that. It's a pivotal thing in this. So, this was directed by Frank Henenlotter. It was written by uh, Robert Bob Martin and co-written as well by the director. It, like I said, is a trauma entertainment film. Trauma Entertainment was a production and distribution company. It was founded by Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Harris in 1980. They are the ones who did Mother's Day, which was 1980. That was one of their first films, but not their first film. They originally started doing raunchy sex comedies and then transitioned into horror in 1985 when they did The Toxic Avenger. Wildly successful. Many people know it. And that main character is actually trauma's official mascot. So if you've seen The Toxic Avenger or you've seen a mascot, you know what trauma films is. 
I don't mean you. I mean our listeners. I'm aware. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot to go. There's a lot to do with this studio and... I could probably do like a mini episode of that if I really wanted to, but definitely don't have time to get into it now. But it's fascinating when you look it up. I mean, they made a film called Frankenhooker. But to tempt you a little more than that, they also made a movie in 1990 called, literally the title is, A Nymphoid Barbarian in Dinosaur Hell. This sounds like Chuck Tingle. It's very Chuck Tingle-y, yeah. I have definitely read some Chuck Tingle before with my sister and two of my friends we just all got drunk and passed around my kindle and read chuck tingle to each other i've never really read much of it i mean i've seen like little preview snippets on amazon but it basically reads like any sort of like honestly it reads like slash fiction except it's just all absolutely outrageous yeah i don't i don't get into slash fiction unless it's dean's dl flash slash fiction and then i then that's my jam we if we ever start a Patreon, one of the levels can be like Zoom parties where I just get drunk and read Chuck Tingle to people. <laughs> it's great. I mean, I do storytelling for a living. It's just usually for children. That That's very true. Also, if people are interested in mini episodes, I don't know, let us know. We've batted around the idea of doing them. Like, not full-blown movie or book reviews, but like, just like little short topics. Maybe like 10-minute, 15-minute episodes. Yeah, like a short film or a short story, that sort of thing. Or talking about a studio or, like, something crazy that happened or whatever. Yeah. Rambling. Anyway, let, let, let's get on to Frankenhooker. So, the two main characters are Jeffrey Franken, played by James Lawrence, and his fiancée, Elizabeth Shelley. Reference. Uh, she is played by Patty Mullen. So. Gentle listener, there was a lack of commentary from me on that part, simply because you couldn't hear my eyes rolling, and I apologize for not rolling them loudly enough. Yeah, it is what it is. So Frankenhooker's initial release was delayed because of difficulty obtaining an R rating from the MPAA. The director recalls one representative of the ratings body actually said in a phone call to the production company's secretary, Congratulations, you're the first film rated S. To which the secretary replied, S for sex? And they said, No, S for shit. (laughs) oh my tell us how you really feel but honestly spoiler alert this movie is really fucking fun like i'm so excited (laughs) it's really good okay let's jump into it the movie opens up where jeffrey we meet jeffrey franken he is this young he's not a doctor he's like a mad scientist but he's also a kid so he's talking to this brain in the jar that has an eyeball it doesn't really serve any purpose other than to kind of show that he's this like mad scientist and it's in the middle of this birthday barbecue party for his fiance's father. His fiance is Elizabeth. And this is definitely, well, I know for a fact from later on that it's in New Jersey. I knew it wasn't from the South because they're drinking Pepsi. Anyway. People in the South drink Pepsi. They're just Philistines. <laughs> yeah, I've literally never seen it. People get red for drinking Pepsi down here. So Elizabeth's mom comes up to her and basically tells her to go check on Jeffrey and make sure he's not acting too strange. And also takes the time to completely fat shame her by telling her to lay off the pretzels at the barbecue. Elizabeth is played by Patty Mullen. Patty Mullen is like a gorgeous, thin, like model actress. But they put her in what they describe in articles as a fat suit. It is not a fat suit. It is a track suit that looks like it has like maybe mild drag queen padding added to it and big shoulders. So it honestly just looks like she's wearing a really 
padded tracksuit, not a fat suit. And they do nothing to like tear her face or anything. God. And so the mom is like calling her fat and telling her to like lay off the pretzels. And I'm just like, what the F is going on here? But that is what it is. Also, don't fat shame fat people. And don't ever tell somebody not to eat something. That is really fucking rude. And I hated it when people used to tell me that when I was fat. So Also, pretzels are delicious. Pretzels are delicious. And honestly, not bad for you. Like They're just carby, but... Yeah, I mean, they're carby, but I think they're, like, low-fat. Like, I think pretzels are, like, supposed to be, like, a healthy-ish snack. I mean, to people that eat carbs. Not us. Not the gays. Not the gays. Carbs are, God, carbs are, like, gay kryptonite. We lose all power in front of them. No, pasta. Anyways. Okay. So, like I said, it's Elizabeth's dad's birthday. And then she and Jeffrey got her remote control lawnmower because Jeffrey's a scientist guy. So he, like, rigged up this lawnmower to be powered by remote control. So Elizabeth is standing there trying to explain it. And she's like, and this button turns it on. And it turns on. And Jeffrey's like, well, you're going to want to move out of the way, honey. And she's like, and this button makes it go. And she hits it. And the lawnmower zooms and runs her over. And it's just like blood and body parts and gore and stuff everywhere. So we're just starting off strong. Yeah, because this is like the beginning of the movie. Because then this is pre-opening credits. After this, we get opening credits. Oh, my God. Yes. So, as you might imagine from the title, Frankenhooker, Jeffrey is planning on bringing his fiance back to life because he misses her. And it's a coping mechanism. So, oh, it's also funny because he has a recording of the news story of, of uh, Elizabeth's death. And he pulls it out and watches it. And the only reason I mention it is because it's it's so f- weirdly campy and funny. The reporter refers to Elizabeth as a girthful fiance oh no and then refers to her being going through the lawnmower like a quote tossed salad jesus yeah and then but then the point whole point of that in the movie is to learn that some of elizabeth's body parts mainly including her head are missing which jeffrey obviously has kept like you do yes so very quickly we see a scene where jeffrey's having dinner with elizabeth's severed head and talking about how there's a storm coming, he's very excited, but needs to find extra body parts because she didn't have enough body parts to be, like, completely remade. So he's like, I know where I can find body parts. And so what does a guy do? He heads on down to New York City's Ho-Stroll. Oh, no. Oh, yes. No. Leave them alone. Yep. So he's going to go look for some girls, but he doesn't need one girl. He figures that he needs around six girls to recreate Elizabeth, which seems a bit greedy. That's excessive. Yes. He basically wants to find the perfect parts. So he's like, I need to find a bunch of girls. And how is he going to kill these girls to get their parts, you may ask? I, I, I didn't because I'm scared. Well... He's going to develop a form of super crack because he knows that prostitutes use crack that will kill them. Yes, you heard that right. Super crack. This is so problematic. Oh, my God. And he tests out the super crack on his guinea pig by pumping crack smoke into its cage, which makes the guinea pig explode. I, oh, my God. This is so, this is a problem. This is such a problem. Oh, my God. Okay. Before people send us emails, we're fully aware (laughs) of the crack epidemic and how disgusting it is. Not like that it was basically done to black communities, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, 
I usually like to throw in disclaimers, but there's just so many necessary for this one. So just blanket disclaimer. I'm just going to say that. Holy shit. And for people who aren't aware, crack is literally just cocaine. Like all of your friends that people know that do cocaine, crack is the exact same thing. It is charged exactly the same. It is just a cheaper cut form of it that's baked in an oven and cracked like rocks. How do I know this? Do I make crack? No, I don't. I'm a criminal defense attorney, people. I've seen crack. Thank you for clarifying. I was going to throw it in myself because it really <laughs> just sounds like you know what you're doing. I know a staggering amount about drugs. It's always a really fun party favor until people are like, what the fuck? Or then so people are like, oh, this guy. Can I get some of that? Can I get two marijuanas, please? I would like two marijuanas. <laughs> yes. Okay. Anyways, so let's move on. We have a lot to cover. Kind of. It's not like this plot is super intricate. So Jeffrey goes and arranges a meeting with these girls who they have a pimp whose name is Zorro, who is this like bodybuilder, beefy guy, actually quite cute. But let me tell you, the one big problem with sex work right now being illegal is that pimps exist because pimps are the real problem with sex work, not actual sex workers. So that's an aside. So basically, Zorro arranges Jeffrey to like meet with like a bunch of these girls. And so they're in the room and he's like being kind of weird and stuff like that. And ultimately, he decides that he can't go through with this. But the girls are like, you still have to pay us. So he like opens his bag to get the money out. But he also has the giant bag of super crack in it. And the girls see it. And the girls go wild because they're like, oh, my God, drugs. Yes. And so they like wrestle the super crack away from him as Jeffrey pleads for them not to do it. And starts everyone starts smoking crack. And they put on rock and roll music and just start like partying. And it's literally this incredibly graphic scene where it's half-naked prostitutes with like boobs jiggling and they're caressing themselves and they're all smoking crack and dancing to this rock music and then one of them explodes and then they all start screaming and the rest of them start to explode and sequentially every prostitute explodes one by one you guys have to see this movie (laughs) how does he use the body parts if they explode well so the limbs like explode off of them so It's the actually the special effects of them exploding is really cheesy. It's like so clearly like mannequins that they rigged with like firecrackers or something. But like it's like the heads are exploding off and the legs are exploding off and things like that. This is a problem. (laughs) Oh, yes. All of this is so problematic. It hurts me. (laughs) So ultimately, Jeffrey is left standing in a room littered with body parts. He starts apologizing to the girls as as he picks up the limbs that he wants. Uh, It's a little late for that, Mary. (laughs) You don't ever ask for permission. Ask for forgiveness. Unless you're blowing people up. Yeah. No. I mean, that's like a good way to run things or like to go about things if you work at a library, for example. Speaking of permission to do weird shit like that, I just was listening to I've been like obsessed about the with this um YouTube channel that tells like scary and strange stories. I was just listening to the one I knew of this, but I didn't know all the details of the guy. I think it's in Germany who puts an ad out on Craigslist for somebody to eat him. Oh, yeah. I've heard that story. Mm -hmm. It's really crazy. What I didn't know is that the first thing they do when they go over, when he goes over there, is the guy, like, cuts a piece of him off, and they cook it, and they try to eat it together. But they say that it's, like, too tough and and overcooked, so they don't like it. That's a lot. And then the guy's in the bathtub, and ultimately, I think what ends up happening is he bleeds out. That's a lot. Yeah. It's pretty gross. It's also real. We're not talking about real shit here. We're talking about Frankenhooker. Okay. So Jeffrey basically gathers up the body parts that he wants in a bag and heads out. 
He ends up bringing Elizabeth back to life using power from a storm. Very a la Frank, Dr. Frankenstein. And when she comes down from her little like rooftop storminess, she is obviously patchworked up like Frankenstein stitches on all limbs because he's used lots of various limbs. Oh, and he puts all the excess limbs because he took extra parts just to make sure that he had enough into like a cooler, like a cooler that like keeps the limbs fresh, I guess, like some like liquid serum situation. He's, so he's got extra limbs. This will come into play in the end of the movie. But Elizabeth is basically played by the same actress, except now she's got her real body. It's just done up to look like multiple bodies. And she's got blue hair and really white face makeup. But it's only like on her face and it goes down to the stitches. I think to highlight the fact that they're saying that her face is different. Yeah. So. <laughs> and the first thing she says Literally in this tone, because she's got this like Frankenstein's monster situation going, is on a date, going out, need some action, looking for company. And it's become apparent that she is no longer Elizabeth. She's now Frankenhooker and basically is taking on the personality of all the prostitutes that were used to make her. Oh, she also is wearing these like super chunky four inch wedge sneakers that look super fucking cool. Just throwing that out there. I would wear those. Oh, and her nipples are purple. I don't know why. They just are. So. Like aggressive, like fluorescent purple? Like pale purple. Interesting. Yeah. But she does have a top on at some point too. So. Okay. So she basically heads out on the town and essentially like she's like on the subway and on the streets in New York and she's basically going up to people and just being like, want some action? Looking for company? Got any money? And if they say no, she like clobbers them and pushes them away (laughs) oh no yeah she's also like randomly inserting lines that we heard from some of the other girls during the party about like jeffrey and, and things like that so ultimately she ends up finding a guy who is like yeah i want some fun she brings him to a hotel room takes him upstairs fucks him which causes him to explode then another guy on her way out kisses her which also causes him to explode and oh. his head to fly off. What? Mm. Mm-hmm. We're actually getting quite close to the end of this movie, believe it or not. So then she goes to a club and Zorro, the pimp from the other girls, is there. And she kind of like confronts him. And he's because so what ends up happening is her arm has a scar of a Z etched into it, which is Zor- what Zorro makes all of his girls get, which is. Like a brand, honestly, is not completely fiction. There are 100% pimps that do shit like that, which is why pimps are problematic. One of the reasons. One of many reasons. Yes. So he's like, who are you? Like, that's not your arm. That's my girl's arm. And he, she, like, throws him across the room. So he comes back and punches her head, which causes the stitches to come loose and her head to, like, hang backward off of, like, the, the back stitches. And all this electricity starts sparking and stuff. Jeffrey, who had been tracking her, shows up and basically, like, puts her head back on and, like, shuffles her out of the club and basically takes her back to his house lab. Zorro follows them. But Jeffrey, like, kind of fixes her head and puts, like, some more electricity into her, at which point she basically becomes Elizabeth's personality. So it's, like, 100% Elizabeth talking now. She kind of is... At first amazed that he can bring people back to life, then realizes that her body parts are not hers and starts getting slightly upset, 
But Jeffrey is like professing his love to her and is like, no, it's going to be okay. I love you. This is, this is what we want. This is what we want. Is it what you collectively want or what you, Jeffrey, want? Or can you not see the difference because you're a man? Well, the man always knows. Exactly. But as he's doing this, Zorro, who had followed him, sneaks up behind him and beheads him with a machete. Like you do. Mm-hmm. So he's then talking to Elizabeth and trying to draw out the other girl's personalities by tempting them with more crack. This is so problematic. <gasps> I hate it so much. Mm-hmm. However, what the crack does is awakens the extra limbs. Remember when I mentioned those that were in the vat of like goo in the cooler? The extra limbs start to animate at the side of the crack and they knock the cooler over they start to drag themselves across the floor and in this like, I don't know what to call it, like primordial ooze liquid, they have combined into these mounds of like boobs and mouths and hands. It's very like body horror society-ish. And they crawl across the floor. They knock Zoro down and ultimately drag him into the cooler and then the cooler shuts and we can only assume that Zoro is killed. Your face is priceless right now. What the fucking fuck? So then, fuck, our last scene, Elizabeth picks up Jeffrey's head and says she has an idea. So then we cut to a scene where we see Jeffrey come back to life using basically like electricity sparks and then Jeffrey's eyes open and it zooms out and we realize that she has brought Jeffrey back to life using the spare prostitute parts, meaning he has a woman's body with like big purple nipples. His hands have these like large purple acrylic nails and Jeffrey is like, what did you do to me? What did you do to me? He sees himself in the mirror. He's like, where's my Johnson? What's going on? And she basically looks at him and is like, I've brought you back. This is what we wanted, right? We can be together now. I love you. And then he screams and that's the end. I love it. <laughs> I love the, this is what we wanted, right? Yeah. Basically, she repeats the exact same lines that he was doing to her when she was like, I don't like that you brought me back with other people's parts. Yes, girl. This is the one part of the movie that I'm okay with. <laughs> so that's that's the end of Frankenhooker. My final thoughts on this movie. This movie, I don't know if excellent is the right word for it, but it's pretty fucking good. It is so out there and so, I mean, it's very clearly like an exploitation film. And so it's, I don't know, there was something about it that was so absurd and so campy that you can't almost not like it. And I had never heard of this film before, even though I do know quite a few trauma studio films, which is weird. I don't know why I hadn't heard of this, but it is, I mean, it's, it's good. It's so bad and so upsetting and so problematic. (laughs) It's, I don't know. The weird thing is, is it clearly has a negative portrayal of sex workers, but I don't, (laughs) I don't know. It's like, it was, it's just entertainment. It's so much. I mean, go watch the movie to see. I don't think I do justice about how, when Elizabeth becomes Frankenhooker, how she's like walking around delivering her lines because it's like, she's talking like she's Frankenstein's monster. And like at one part in the bar, there's a bowl of pretzels, which we know Elizabeth loves. And so she picks up the bowl and she starts like shoving them in her mouth. And she's like, pretzels, good. Jesus Christ. That is wild. So anyways, I'm not going to lie. This movie was so much better than Mother's Day, which I didn't even hate. I actually liked it. This one, though, oh, my God. Go watch Frankenhooker. Let us know what you think. Try to get over some of the problematic stuff. 
I mean, sometimes it almost seemed like it was so over the top. It was satire, but for the fact that it's 1990, so it probably wasn't. But it seems like it was. Anyways, that's Frankenhooker. Now tell me what you're going to talk about. I really thought I was going to have you beat on crazy <laughs> this week, but I'm, I don't think I do. Yikes. I feel like it's just feel like no book this week. <laughs> Tap out. Sorry. Not a contest. Can't do it. All right, Peaches. My my script says, have I got a doozy for you today? But comparatively, eh, who knows? Um, I'm finally heading back into the world of vintage horror. I took a bit of a break, which ended up being a two-month break, because it was starting to wear me down a little bit. Not the horror aspect, because honestly, I've read much scarier things since. But I, it was hard reading just how horribly women were treated. I mean, honestly, I, yeah, that's just a theme in horror. Horror is not kind to a lot of women. It's awful. But anyway, I was just getting really tired of it. The lesson here, kids, is the patriarchy is exhausting and bad and we should dismantle it. Anyway, without further ado, that is why this week I am telling you all about the 1982 pulp horror treat that is The Heirloom by Thomas Luke. Surprisingly, there isn't a lot of misogyny in this one, beyond the fact that the main character frequently refers to his wife as, quote, almost beautiful, and her (laughs) face as, quote, just shy of pretty, which, the cheek, the nerve, the gall, the audacity, the gumption. (laughs) Let me tell you, if you ever said that to me, I swear to God. Well, I would never say that because you are incredibly good looking. Oh, hush. But yeah, literally like every time the character walks into the room, it's like she had a concerned look on her just shy of pretty face. Yikes. Her almost beautiful blah, blah, blah. Also. Her almost lovely breasts. Like seriously. Also, everybody's beautiful. No joke. Except for Republicans. Just kidding. If you're a Republican, please keep listening to us. But. Don't talk to us. But seriously, rethink your politics. Anyways, continue. The cover is classic 80s, and by that, I mean, we don't know who did it. (laughs) Um, It's a boy in a striped shirt. It actually feels even more 80s because the striped shirt is very, like, Nightmare on Elm Street vibe. Hmm, That was in the 80s, right? Yes, it was. Okay. Just wanted to make sure I wasn't saying something that someone would be like, oh, excuse me, actually, Nightmare on Elm Street was released December 30th, 1979, so it's actually 70s horror. (laughs) Go fuck yourself with your 70s horror. Anyway, he's sitting in a chair that he's like sinking into, like becoming a part of the chair. Uh, The tagline at the top is great. It is, in a world of fine antiques, an ancient evil force waited until now. Which is deceptive. The force was not waiting. You'll find out why. (laughs) The blurb is amazing. Ricky Delatola. Delatola. It's obviously Italian. I'm assuming Delatola. Collected Victorian armoires and Louis XIV settees and the fashionable California home he shared with his wife and happy, healthy young son. But when Ricky Delatola bought a carved mahogany chair, he unknowingly opened the door to hell itself. Now, in a cataclysm of supernatural terror, the Delatola family will have their lovely ordered world ravaged by evil forces. The devil's seat, the epicenter of all that is vile, hateful, and perverse, has come to live with them, and there's only one way to escape, through an auction of the soul, 
for the supernatural price of murder. Also, Ricky collects antique settees and armoires. Ricky sounds a little bit like family to me. He is an antique dealer. That's not arguing his case. Anyway, continue. He makes passionate love to his almost beautiful wife at one point in the book. Oh, boy. I actually talk about it because it's an interesting scene. There's also a tagline on the back of the book. I love when books do that. You know, I love when, you know, you get tagged on both ends. This one says, there is no rest from fear, no comfort from horror when you sit upon the heirloom. Mm. So it's about a cursed chair. Yeah, I guess that the cover makes sense from it. I'm so excited. All right, so let's go ahead and jump in. A man named Mr. Grant shows up at Rick's house. I'm just going to call him Rick. I don't know why. Just Ricky. I don't want to do it. So Rick is an antique dealer. And this guy, Mr. Grant, he's like, I've got something really special for you. Just help me get out of my van, which sounds like a good way to get kidnapped. <laughs> but Rick is a full grown man. So eh, maybe. Can you help me move this couch? Oh, God. So Ricky is so bothered by how heavy it is. It's a solid mahogany chair. But he's a super tough man from the 80s, and he talks about a time that he carried a solid mahogany armoire all by himself, which is bullshit. Yeah, I mean, we literally own a solid wood armoire, and that thing weighs a bajillion pounds. Absolute bullshit. And he's like, I once carried an armoire by myself. And I'm like, <laughs> lies and fairy tales. Anyway, eventually he gets the chair out. Like I said, it's solid mahogany with a black leather seat that is warm to the touch and seems to breathe. But Rick's like, "Mm, that's not weird. The arms are carved to look like serpents and the back, like the front of the back, that part of a chair has an actual name. It's in the book, but I didn't write it down. So like what would be against the your back is a face at the top. And then below that are carvings of bodies writhing in agony as they descend into hell. Sounds like a cool chair. And in case the imagery here is too subtle, this chair is of the devil. (laughs) Which just reminds me of a time that a patron entered a phone call with me by yelling, get behind me, Satan. That'd be a good line for a porn though, right? Get behind me, Satan. Yeah. And then they're like, you get it? It was the same patron who, in the middle of her conversation with me, goes, how do you feel after having sex with a man? And I was like, you do not want me to answer that (laughs) question truthfully, girl. Anyway. You're like, well, it depends on the man. Uh, Anyway, Rick is inside calling the supposed previous owners of the chair because they live nearby to see if this Mr. Grant is legit. And the woman who answers denies the existence of the chair. Wonder if she's lying. And when Rick goes back out, Mr. Grant is gone and his wife and son are standing there completely dazed. And Sarah, his wife, said that she was overwhelmed by fear that Rick would die. And Jonathan, his son, said he saw Rick sinking into the chair. And still they're like, huh, that was weird. And then they put the chair in the garage and go to the fucking zoo. I do love the zoo, though. (sighs) I'm just very annoyed by, like, so many red flags. Well, I mean, red flags. This is more red flags than a man named Chad. People in horror movies do not make good decisions. I think that's a well-established fact. I know. Or horror books or movies. Anyway, that night, Rick hears growling coming from his library, and he sees animal eyes flashing in the dark. But when he puts on the lights, the chair is there. And he's like, that's weird. I left it in the garage. 
So he moves it back, confused but not too worried that a solid mahogany chair moved by itself from the garage to his library. And then he and Sarah start to bone passionately in front of a romantic, roaring fire where Rick notes that the moistness between her thighs glistens like maple syrup in an autumn sunset. What the fuck? (laughs) To which I would retort, Sarah, honey, I don't know you, but I care about your health. And I know that calling and making appointments can cause anxiety. Would you like for me to call a gynecologist for you? Oh my God. Maple syrup. That's real dark. I have limited experience with such parts. But it's never looked like maple syrup in an autumn sunset. And I'm pretty sure it's not supposed to. Oh boy. That is an image that will be in my mind for a while. Then, I won't be eating pancakes for a while either. Because we don't do carbs. Then, while literally inside of her, he stops and goes, wait, I didn't light a fire. (laughs) (laughs) The fire lit itself. Ah, from the heat of their passion. No, because of Satan. (laughs) Same thing. Potato, potato. Oh, God. So he goes back to the library and the chair is back. Watching them? No, they made love in the living room. Oh, okay, okay. So the chair's back. So he calls Mr. Grant's office and is told that Mr. Grant is dead. Like he died in a car crash on the way back to the office. But he had left specific instructions to never take the chair back. So they throw it in a reservoir. The end. Wait, that's the end of the book? No, I'm just messing with you. (laughs) So the next day, a customer named David, he's British... Uh, he is at the antique shop and he's interested in something unrelated that Rick is storing at the house. So they go back and the chair is back in the library. Again. I'm basically telling you the whole plot, by the way, in case people are wary of spoilers. This book's been out for 40 years. You've had time. Anyway, thankfully, the customer is willing to buy the chair. So they haul it out to the car. But just then, a howl comes from the backyard and the family dog comes around the house, clearly dying. A giant bug bursts from the stomach of the dog. The look look on your face is great. Um, And then crawls to the chair and like disappears in the seam where the leather meets the mahogany. Um, And at that point, Rick has had it officially. So he takes an axe to the face of the chair, but there are no marks. And then Jonathan screams from inside of the house with a giant axe wound on his face. Oh, So David takes the chair, and Rick, understandably, takes his bleeding son to the hospital. (laughs) So Jonathan is in a coma, and Rick is wandering around, and he sees a little boy. And he thinks it might be Jonathan, even though, like, Jonathan's room is right behind him, and the boy did not walk past him, but whatever. But when he follows the boy to the laundry room, a little boy with the face of the chair is scuttling around on the ceiling. Hmm. And it's like, the trilobite was my familiar. I will not leave until you accept what I offer. Doesn't actually offer anything. Um, And Ricky is like, fuck you. And then the laundry room bursts into flames. Hmm. So later on, Rick goes home to get some rest, leaving Sarah at the hospital in case Jonathan wakes up. And David shows up. And he had been on his way to ship the chair when he suddenly felt like his body was ripping apart. Which is weird. Anyway, he pulls over. And when the feeling passed, he looks in the back of his car and the chair is no longer there. 
It's not in the library yet, but they're pretty sure it's going to, you know, show up at some point. They decide to go and visit the previous owners of the chair, the Jessops, who made their fortune producing guided missiles. (laughs) Sadly, going there gives us pretty much nothing, but I needed to introduce the family because we'll come back to it. So when they get back to the house, guess what? The chair's in the library again. Also, the trilobite shows up while Rick is trying to go to sleep and bites him. So he grabs it, stabs it with a hot poker from the fireplace. I don't know why his fireplace was still burning when he was asleep. That's dangerous. Then takes it outside and sets it on fire. So at that point, Rick calls a priest to come and perform an exorcism. But the priest is like, um, no, this isn't demonic possession. You see, you've made a lot of money and you've gotten very complacent and your complacency has caused a backup of psychic energy that's manifesting in reaction to the appearance of this chair. And that's what's really happening here. Sloth. What? Which doesn't seem like good priestly work to me, but hey, I didn't grow up Catholic, so what do I know? That that seems very wrong. Also... There's actually a lot of, like, red tape to get an exorcism. It has to be approved by the Vatican. Yeah. They don't do them that much anymore. The Catholic Church's gotten real boring lately. All they want to do is take away women's rights. Anyway. Then the chair appears out of nowhere in the living room. Shock, shock. Not the library for once. While the priest is talking. And the priest is like, oh, okay. Maybe you do need help. (laughs) But the chair is like, not in my backyard, utensils, and starts throwing the priest around the room with, like, psychic power. Obviously, the chair didn't, like, come to life. Um, before smashing him face first into the fireplace Ooh. with a fire burning in it. The fireplace is, like, the most interesting character in this book. It plays a big role. It really does. Um, so David and Rick hide the body by driving it off a cliff in the priest's car. Wait. <laughs> okay. I mean, they just covered up that murder. Well, okay, are you going to call the police and be like, my possessed chair killed my priest? Also, that is not going to work. A a burned off face is not going to look like it died in a car wreck. Well, they like drove it off a cliff and it fell and then blew up. Um, It wasn't like off a cliff into the ocean. Okay. That just seems like a really elaborate way to hide a body. Where is the body? Carol Baskin, seriously, where is it? Anyway, this is when we get backstory. There once was a man named William who was very successful, and he made a deal with the devil chair for his success, offering to sacrifice a soul. And that soul was the soul of his mistress, because women are property. Gross. Anyway, his mistress was having a relationship with David at the time. The love of his life. So the mistress dies in, like, a horrible grease fire accident, like, body covered Mm. in, like, flaming napalm grease. And then William dies shortly thereafter because apparently the chair drains your life. Whatever. So Mr. Jessup gets the chair, and he also becomes super successful with his guided missile business. He is then diagnosed with a terminal illness, so he makes a deal with the chair, offering up the soul of his son. But the son hasn't died yet, and now Rick has the chair. So that brings us to now. You have to be in possession of the chair to make a deal. So Martin Jessup, the son, and David are working together to get the chair back. Martin wants to bargain for his soul back, and David wants to bargain to have his lady back from the dead. And their plan is to offer up the souls of 
hundreds of people by launching a guided missile at an interdenominational convention that's in town. <laughs> God. I mean, there are worse targets to pick. Yikes. So the chair offers to let Rick pass along possession without anyone's soul having to be sacrificed. Why? Because apparently the devil needs one million souls to be able to walk the earth again. And having a whole convention of souls is much better than just one soul. So Rick gives up the chair. And when he goes to the hospital, Jonathan is waking up from his coma. But the voice of God tells Rick that Jonathan was safe the whole time because he's an innocent and is protected. So Rick hatches a plan. Okay. So Rick, Sarah, and Jonathan go to the Jessup house where there is a missile in their backyard that is being prepared for the launching. The devil is so excited about his souls that he's about to get that he starts to materialize in the chair. But that's when things get exciting because Jonathan sits in the chair and because he's an innocent, the devil is fought back down into hell. And then Jonathan is given godlike powers, briefly, that can control the missile. And while he's doing this, Martin and David flee inside the Jessup house. Jonathan directs the missile at the house, which makes it blow up. And then Rick throws the chair into the flames. The end. Actually, the end. But why is that fire going to kill the chair? Because the devil was beaten back by Jonathan's innocence when he sat in it. That seemed very convenient. Yes. Yes, it was. We're not looking for complexity of plot here, Max. <laughs> all in all, I'm going to give this four out of five trilobites on a hot poker. It was actually a lot of fun. It was wild enough to be entertaining without being too problematic, comparatively. My only knock is, with the exception of the cursed object being a chair specifically, I've read the whole, like, object that brings you luck but slowly kills you and requires a sacrifice yada 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 story a million times mm-hmm. so but yeah that's the heirloom seemed all right i'm not too too mad about it if you were in the heirloom would you be killed i don't think i would uh as you may have guessed from my description i think the chair is very suspicious and probably <laughs> never would have bought it in the first place you however probably would have been because when i described the chair to you you were like that's what's cool that chair, I mean, it does kind of sound like something I would put in my house. But it's a little heavy-handed, like the chair of Satan. Uh, would you die? I don't even want to say the name. Would you die in Frankenhooker? <laughs> no. Because as much of a hooker as I am, he only wants women's parts because he's sexist and not open-minded. So... No. I mean, the only people that die in it are literally the prostitutes who explode. And, well, him and the pimp. So And the Johns. Oh, the Johns who have sex with her. Yeah. But I'm not sure that I would necessarily... I mean, she looks rough when she's, like, out there, like, trying to pick up Johns. Like, she's got, like, big stitches on all of her parts. I don't think that I would necessarily want to get into that. So I'm going to go with a no. I would probably survive Frank and Hooker. But I would totally be friends with her. She was really funny. God. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, folks. If you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us questions, comments, concerns, secondtodiepod at gmail.com or message us directly on Instagram. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.